the CU 2.0 podcast. Welcome to the CU 2.0 podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. Today's guest, Mike Edwards, Senior Vice President for Advocacy at the World Council of Credit Unions. Last week, you might recall, we interviewed Mike Reuter of an allied organization with the World Council. This week, we're continuing the international viewpoint by talking with Mike Edwards about what the hot issues are in terms of advocacy with credit unions around the world. Let me give you a starter question first, though. What country has the most credit union membership as a percentage of population? Think hard now. I'll tell you, it's not the United States. It is not. What country? According to Edwards, it's the 32 counties of Ireland, north and south, which he says has about 70% uh, participation in credit unions. Seven out of ten people belong to credit unions in the 32 counties. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. In his podcast, he tells why that might be so. He also talks about the importance of international trends for U.S. credit unions. For instance, many, many, many of the regulations pertaining to things like data privacy, money laundering, bank secrecy, risk-based capital, Many of these have their origin in actions and regulations that first took effect overseas. In many cases, it's Europe, but it could be any place overseas. In today's world, money moves globally, and if so, apparently, do regulations. I had no idea, but Edwards, that's what Edwards lives and breathes. And in many cases, he's the functional representative of U.S. credit unions in front of or working alongside international bodies when it comes to helping them shape regulations that when they come to the U.S. will be more beneficial or, let's put it this way, less harmful to U.S. credit unions. It's a wide-ranging conversation. I know I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot listening to it. So we're going to talk about credit union advocacy. I have a particular interest in in differences between what U.S. credit unions want and what other credit unions want. What are the hot hot button issues? We're we're the uh, global level trade association for credit unions around the world, including in the U.S. And the Credit Union National Association is our our largest member. And they, of course, represent uh, credit unions in the United States. Essentially, our role in advocacy is to deal with international issues that have an impact on credit unions in the U.S. because many of the regulations uh, that the National Credit Union Administration or other agencies are, are putting forward on safety and soundness or other issues are actually based on international standards. So a good example of that is the NCUA's risk-based capital regulation, which um, is due to take effect next year. That regulation is based on uh, an international standard on regulatory capital, risk-based capital, called Basel III. And so since 2012, we have been working uh, on advocating before the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision to change parts of Basel III in ways that will make the risk-based capital regulation less burdensome on credit unions in the U.S. Our, Our members in other parts of the world, like Canada or Australia or Europe, are also impacted by these rules. So we end 
up representing everybody's interests. We, we have members all over the place. But anti-money laundering is another area where international standards play a big role. Data security, uh, even when there isn't an international standard, the uh, different regulators tend to look at examples in other countries and, and copy those. Probably not something you've worked on, but the push for real-time banking essentially, oh, yes. essentially started overseas, and American institutions fought it vigorously in most cases. Well, you know, the part of part of that is actually those are issues we've we've worked on actually, uh, particularly in in Europe. And the the reason that uh, or the main reason that real time transactions are not really more attractive has to do with the actually the regulatory environment for for payments and consumer protection. So under the the Truth in Savings Act and you know other other laws, the Uniform Commercial Code or NACHA rules or whatever system you're getting into, essentially consumers have a, a, a right to dispute transactions. And often it's at least two banking days before the uh, credit union can be fully protected from a potential fraud if someone initiates a transaction and then receives the money in another account and then disputes it. So that is an area where the uh, the law on consumer protection in payments probably needs to be updated in order to make a real-time payment system a, a reality. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I'm, I'm aware that there are some significant limitations in many legacy court systems that well, that's true as te- well. technically um, make it difficult for credit many credit unions to do real time. That that's part of it as well. The uh, the, the actual like settlement aspects of it uh, in terms of getting money in the account rather than just a payment order are another aspect of this that's kind of more on the operational side. Um, not just the core banking systems needing to be updated, but but you know that's that's part of it as well. So where are these these initiatives originating? Are, are these primarily coming from Europe or other parts of the world? In a, they're actually coming from the United States and from Europe because the international organizations are made up of mostly G20 countries. So the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, for example, is, is made up of the, the Federal Reserve Board, uh, the FDIC, Part of the Treasury Department is called the controller of the currency, which regulates national banks and federal thrifts. And so a lot of what the Basel Committee does reflects U.S. priorities because the U.S. is one of the biggest members. Um, you know, the United Kingdom and France and Germany are also members, Spain, uh, Argentina, a number of other countries. There's a real politic element to it that the United States is actually behind a lot of these things, although not the National Credit Union Administration. Uh, on the anti-money laundering part, it's an organization based in Paris called the Financial Action Task Force, but the U.S. Treasury is a member of that. In fact, the um, the president of the, the the organization is a U.S. Treasury official right now. So most of the Bank Secrecy Act guidance in, in the U.S. was actually originally developed by this organization, often at the behest of the U.S. Treasury and, and similar regulators. And uh, there aren't usually, you know, consultations about it, um, except at the international level. So there's like a, a meeting of the Financial Action Task Force we're going to participate in. That's a public consultative meeting uh, in Vienna that's scheduled for uh, the beginning of, of May. And that will be U.S. credit unions and other credit unions' only real opportunity to give input on the anti-money laundering guidance before it's issued in the U.S. And with the Basel Committee, even though the NCUA is not a member of it, uh, they end up 
having to implement many of the same uh, rules that are developed at the international level because the federal banking regulators adopt them and then NSUA usually adopts a similar approach. Um, there's even an agency called the uh, Federal Financial Institutions Examination uh, Committee, FFIEC, which issues joint guidance that is based on the international standards often and uh, which uh, NSUA is a member of that agency. All of these things trickle down to the U.S. and to other countries without a lot of deviation. There is some tailoring that goes on, like the NSUA risk-based capital rule is only going to apply to credit unions that are above $500 million in total assets, and some of the other aspects of it have been changed slightly. That rule will allow NSUA to say that they implemented Basel III, which will uh, be consistent with what the, the federal banking regulators have done. $500 million, that would mean the majority of credit unions would be exempt from the rules, though. Yes, the smaller ones, yeah. And actually, the um, the usefulness of the uh, risk-based capital rule is, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, to be honest, because federally insured credit unions have a, a leverage ratio requirement of 6% to be adequately capitalized or 7% to be well capitalized. That's the uh, net worth ratio. And the, the risk-based capital rules are, are really designed for institutions that have less capital than that. So because of the high capital requirements under the net worth ratio and because federally insured credit unions are, are pretty limited in what they can invest in, most of the risk is taken out that way. I don't think that it makes a whole lot of sense to do risk-based capital when you've taken the risk out and you have a high leverage ratio. But that's what is uh, the rule. And you know, while it's not the majority of credit unions that will be subject to it, the majority of credit union assets will be subject to it. A metric I use is if you add up the assets of all the credit unions in America, they're about equal to the assets of J.P. Morgan Chase. So mm -hmm. one institution can have a heck of a lot of assets. Well, so. right, and these rules are really written for the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world, and uh, it makes sense to apply these types of rules to an institution like J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America or, or, or what have you because they engage in complex activities, investment banking, uh, commercial banking, uh, derivatives clearing, things like that, that credit unions don't do. But the uh, kind of imprimatur of having an international standard leads a lot of regulators to just kind of cut and paste the international standard. It, it, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, it's a lot easier to say that you followed an international standard, I think, than to do something um, more unique. Well, money also today moves internationally to an extent that would have been unthinkable even perhaps 20 years ago. Yes, and technically speaking, a lot of these international standards are states that they uh, are only required for internationally active banks, ones that have offices in other countries. And for credit unions, they don't usually do that. You know, there might be some that have branch offices on military bases overseas, but that's really technically part of the United States. Or, you know, the United Nations Federal Credit Union has some representation offices around the world, but they're not full service branches. So, you know, from that perspective, none of them, Basel Committee standards really technically need to apply to credit unions in the United States, but yet they're applied anyway. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just the risk-based capital regulation. There's a standard on pretty much everything, ranging from correspondent banking to the 
core principles of prudential supervision, which are really, when you put it all together, it's all over all over NCUA's rules and uh, the rules of other federal financial regulators. There's even work now on the consumer protection issue. And many of the um, ideas that I've seen the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau come up with uh, really originated in Europe, where we, um, we, we represent credit unions in Brussels as the European network of credit unions. So things like uh, the remittances regulation that CFPB has a originated as a European idea. What's your sense of the differences between U.S. credit unions and foreign credit unions? Well, you have a lot of diversity among credit unions, both in the U.S. and, and overseas. But uh, outside the country, uh, outside the United States, you, you kind of have, you have some where the, uh, the regulations and the permissible business activities are a bit more liberal. But, you know, the regulatory environment is, is more, there are more regulatory burdens. So, Credit unions in Canada and Australia have uh, fewer restrictions on, you know, the types of business activities they can do, the types of investments they can do. There's still a lot of restrictions, but fewer restrictions than credit unions in the U.S. But they also pretty much, even the smaller ones, have to follow these international standards so the $500 million asset threshold doesn't, doesn't apply. Then in other jurisdictions, there are maybe fewer products and services that are offered because, you know, the size of the credit unions are, are a big part of um, what types of services they could offer. And a lot of the ones in, say, Europe are, are smaller than in the U.S. So the kind of traditional credit union uh, signature loans, a term loan that is, is for, you know, a fixed number of months or years, that's a very common product in Europe or the Caribbean, and the credit unions are getting into other things like payments and uh, mortgages, but they've been slower. It depends on the country a lot. I mean, there's, there's uh, take the Republic of Ireland, for example. They recently uh, started a payment service bureau for, for credit unions, a, a QSO, for payments. But prior to that, they didn't really have a regular payments system access. And uh, they've they've offered a few credit unions in Ireland have offered mortgages for years, but they're now going more into uh, offering mortgages. It, it was really just a few. It, it takes a fair amount of volume to be able to sell mortgages into the secondary market. The the Irish credit unions are mostly making mortgages to holding portfolio, but uh, you know some of the ones there maybe six hundred million dollars or, or so. That's so uh, big enough to make mortgages, but traditionally they were smaller and um, only a few of them did it. Well, to some extent, credit unions in other countries sometimes have reminded me of the old American SNL. Back in the SNL heyday, they didn't even have checking accounts. It was uh, simple. You could save money and they could lend you money, and that was it. Credit unions in the United States were, were like that, too, until basically the 1970s when um, shared draft accounts were, were authorized. Uh, that's what some of them overseas are, are like now, although, uh, you know, to really be able to serve members these days, you need to offer payment services. You know, that's one of the things that they will end up forming, uh, you know, a, a, a QSO over to try to be able to offer it. That's the Irish have done that. The uh, Polish credit unions basically are using the largest credit union in Poland as a correspondent. And um, we helped start service bureaus in a number of Latin American countries to help the credit unions uh, there be able to offer payments like in Mexico and Ecuador and other countries. What, what country would you say or what countries would you say have the most mature credit union sectors? 
The United States is, is the largest one, and it's, of course, very mature. As I mentioned before, Canada and Australia have, they're basically subject to banking regulations to a large extent that are perhaps more stringent than the uh, U.S. credit union rules in some respects, but they're basically all pretty mature and you know subject to a lot of regulatory burdens. Uh, the Brazilian credit union system that's our member, Secredi, is actually a very interesting example where they um, basically operate using several corporate credit unions among about 300, I believe, retail-level credit unions, and they've been able to achieve a lot of uh, efficiencies and economies of scale operating that way. And in South Korea, the credit unions there have, have done a similar uh, sort of approach using their uh, federation as, as essentially as a corporate credit union. Those ones are, are, are very good examples. The Irish credit union system has perhaps the highest rate of membership other than possibly the United States. But, well, really, as a, as a per capita level, it's about 70% of the people in Ireland are credit union members, and that includes Northern Ireland. So that's you know higher than the United States. Although they're kind of getting uh, more into the full-service uh, system, there's a very strong uh, credit union system there. And I'm surprised they're that, they're that affectionate towards credit unions. Credit unions there uh, were started uh, at a grassroots level in the community and you know they're they're not for profit and they're owned by their members and um the, the members there's a strong culture of volunteering there they are there are only maybe two irish owned banks at this point and uh, they're banks from other parts of europe but the, the credit unions are basically the only um irish owned institution other than these these two banks and it really is a high degree of social solidarity irish banks almost blew up the economy of ireland 10 years ago right and the credit unions ended up getting more regulations as a result of that but they weren't really part of the uh, the problem there you know no. i think a lot of a lot of the credit union systems in europe and the caribbean have a high degree of solidarity in poland for example the credit unions actually grew out of the solidarity movement and there you have one very large credit union and a lot of other uh, smaller ones that they all kind of work collaboratively to uh, be able to offer uh, products and services all across Poland. They're really, in both Poland and Ireland, the credit unions are the ones that have the biggest branch presence in rural areas. That's uh, part of it as well. But I think that the cooperative mission of the credit unions and structure is what really appeals to people. Well, that's, that's the history of the credit union in the United States, too, where many arose to serve people whom banks did not particularly want to serve. You know, factory yeah. workers, for instance, there would be a credit union inside a factory that would issue little loans for cars and perhaps houses, maybe a roof repair, that kind of stuff. And it was a good good, good world. It served the, the members and it served the community. And I, I think that's true in Ireland. And I guess I, from what you're saying, that's also true in Poland. That's, to me, a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, it's true, um, true all over the place, wherever there are credit unions because of the structure of it. I mean, since the credit union exists to serve its members rather than to uh, maximize profits at their expense, I mean, wherever you are, the credit union is going to be probably the, the best deal as long as it has sufficient scale to, you know, offer competitive rates. It's, you know, really even... When you become a large credit union, you, you are able to offer even better rates than if you're small and serve your members better that way. Are you aware of any countries where 
surprisingly, credit unions don't exist? There are a number of countries where they have financial cooperatives that have different names. So you have cooperative banks in a number of European countries, uh, including Germany and Austria, which is where the credit unions originated, but they ultimately became called cooperative banks. So that is perhaps surprising, but it's, it's a very similar type of institution. You have, I think, pretty much almost every country has some form of financial cooperative, whatever it's called. I think people just would start them even if they uh, didn't exist, even if the concept didn't really exist. I think it's a fairly common sense sort of um, proposition that you know people in a community could cut out the middleman by doing business with each other, essentially. Now, do you, in your work, do you deal at all with the United States Fund? We do somewhat. So, you know, often we, we work with uh, CUNA on issues related to uh, the U.S. Congress, but when there's um, an issue that's related to uh, some kind of international issue like the uh, Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act that affects credit unions in the U.S., but it's, it's internationally oriented, we've uh, gotten involved to help with that and um, also on, on other issues uh, such as um, international development uh, funding from the U.S. government, another thing we supported. Um, so if there's an international angle to it, we, we get involved, although, you know, we work with uh, CUNA since they're our member in the United States. Right. That's what I was wondering, is if, if CUNA was effectively your lobbyist with Congress. We support them and uh, they support us. I mean, it depends on, on which sort of um, uh, issue you're talking about, but, you know, they're our largest member and, um, you know, whatever their priorities are, if we can assist them, we will. Uh, they're the ones who have the day-to-day -day relationships. What country would you say has the most activity involving credit unions at this point? Not not volume of transactions, just legislative, investigative. You know, I, I, I don't know of investigative activity, but, um, you know, the uh, the United States certainly has a lot of rules always being made and redone involving uh, credit unions. In in um, Australia, they've been working very hard to get some updates to the uh, the, the credit union uh, laws, essentially to um, allow them to issue um, capital shares, things like that. And in both Canada and Australia, there's a lot of rulemakings uh, to implement various types of, of aspects of Basel III which I mentioned before, basically uh, the, the part that's in the NCUA risk-based capital rule, although that's being revised in many cases, um, but also other rules on liquidity and uh, operational risk and things like that. So there's a lot going on there. In the U.S., an issue that keeps percolating is uh, field of membership. Is that an issue in other countries? Yes and no. In in countries like Australia and Canada, field of membership is not a very meaningful um, restriction at this point. Most of them either have what's called an open common bond, so essentially there is no field of membership restriction, or it's based on anyone who lives or works in the province where the credit union is chartered, which Vermont, I believe, also has that rule and maybe, maybe some other states. But um, in Canada, that's what most of the credit unions uh, have is their common bond. There are a few that might have something like an ethnic common bond, like um, anyone of Croatian descent or Ukrainian descent anywhere in the world. But
but you know, unless you want to have a common bond, you don't have to really in those countries unless it's uh, anyone that lives or works in the province. In Canada and Australia, you don't have to have one at all. In other countries like the United Kingdom, for example, they have uh, liberalized the common bond rules to allow more geographic common bonds and um, you know allow multiple uh, cities to be a common bond, like uh, you know Western London, things like that, South London. And then, you know, a number of other ones have, say, associational common bonds or really no common bond at all. I mean, if you go to a country like Kenya, uh, you're not required to have a common bond as a credit union, which are actually called Savings and Credit Cooperative Organizations, or SACOs. But some of them do keep the common bonds because, say, credit standpoint, if everyone is a teacher or something, you, you know how they're, um, where they work and how they get paid. But many places, they've, they've come to the... Uh, realization that the common bond is a bit of an anachronism. If you go back historically, you know, there's there's kind of a character lending component to the common bond. Like if everyone's a teacher, we know where they work and how they get paid. Credit scoring, you know, that's a, a very good way of, of finding out people's credit worthiness without, uh, you know, looking strictly at the we only lend to teachers. Um, and it can promote financial inclusion much better to open up the common bond and, and serve people who may not be within like a select employment group like that. But uh, another element of the common bond traditionally was that many credit unions would, you know, post a list of people who were not paying their loans. And so it was sort of a form of credit enhancement that way. Like if you were in a little credit union at a factory like you were talking about before. Uh, but that's largely not done these days. It would be you know, illegal in the United States to post a list of delinquent borrowers, for example, or in the European Union, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. I, I didn't know that about the U.S. When, when do you think that practice stopped? The, I think the Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, I believe I, I believe that makes it illegal. Yeah, so posting the list has not been done for a long time because, you know, you can't uh, publicize that someone's right. not paying their loan. I'm not sure exactly when that was first adopted, but 40 years ago or so. That was that was serious business when the factory would put up a little little notice about here. Right. Well, you know, You know, that they, was that was the thing. That was that was part of why uh, you could you could have a little credit union like that and have it be successful. But um, you know, that's uh, a well, it's not the 1930s anymore. Yeah, well, that's also the day when Joe comes in, he wants 500 bucks or to buy a new car. So you go ask his foreman, hey, is he a good worker? You're going to fire him? Okay, he's a good worker. You're not going to fire him. Okay, we'll give him the loan. I know that was that was kind of the due diligence. Right. Well, that that was uh, that that was a big part of it as well. You know, you know where everybody works and uh, that they're going to get paid. And credit unions clearly are pushing in the United States for a geographic field of member. Bankers are pushing back against that definition, but that's the kind of pull, push-pull that's happening. And that's an issue that's been litigated for, for over 20 years, uh, more than that. I mean, the, um, uh, the banks brought field of membership litigation in the early 1990s that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and then um, the Credit Union Membership Access Act was passed in 1998 to essentially reverse the Supreme Court decision that held that... Um, uh, multiple common bond credit unions were unlawful. Then after that, you know, they brought a bunch of other cases, mostly arguing that specific geographic common bonds were too large, you know, so that's been an ongoing uh, battle. But, you know, I mean, banks are for-profit institutions. If they can have, you know, regulatory restrictions on, on credit unions, that makes it easier for the, uh, the banks to make money. I mean, that actually goes to a lot of what we do in terms of advocacy on these uh, 
you know, international standards on capital requirements and things like that, the large banks, you know, they might care about some of the details. But the fact that you have such burdensome rules that are then being applied to much smaller institutions without necessarily very much tailoring or proportionality makes it harder for community-based institutions to compete with them, whether they're credit unions or community banks. And then that's part of why the big banks have been getting bigger and bigger and uh, community banks have been getting smaller because they, they end up having a hard time to compete with the big guys who have you know uh, regulatory burdens that are easier to pay for with the larger economies of scale. Let's sum this up. So your job... In a nutshell, tell me if I have this right, is to help protect American credit unions' interests when it comes to implementation of rules and regulations that originate abroad but could affect them directly. Well, yes. I mean, many of those are international standards that the U.S. government is is negotiating with other countries. And so we, we engage them. Uh, essentially, it's, it's the U.S. government that's doing this. Um, just with other countries involved. Once those deals are cut, there's not usually another bite of the apple. Sometimes there is, but what we're doing is moving things along so that when it does trickle down to the U.S., it's much less bad than it would have been otherwise. And if you look at the agencies that are involved, none of them are credit union regulators, uh, or at least not from the U.S. side. So we're the ones there uh, making sure that credit unions are, are uh, have, a, have a seat at the table. Before we go, the CU 2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first served. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. The CU 2.0 podcast.